got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. This is What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. I'm Emily Yates. And on this episode, we'll be diving into drugs and talking with Dr. Carol Konselman, a professor at CU Boulder and a drug policy reform activist who specializes in a critical approach to studying the drug war. This topic really touches every single discipline that you could think of, law, medicine, business, chemistry, biology, sociology, on and on. And on that note... Drugs are bad, that's what they say. If you take drugs, you must be locked away. Drink some booze to make you happy. Take a pill if you are sad. Smoke a butt or sip a latte if you're mad. But don't take drugs, because drugs are bad. All right. So we're here with Dr. Carol Konzelman um, from CU Boulder. And we're going to be talking about drug policy reform, what that means in terms of the pandemic, and kind of the bigger state of the drug policy reform movement in the United States and beyond. So I guess my first question for you, Carol, is why do you think drug policy is important right now, even with the, this pandemic going on? Well, this pandemic is doing a great public service, I believe, because it's highlighting a lot of the flaws in our current system, a lot of different dimensions of the system, meaning kind of post-slash-neo-colonial, neoliberal kind of political economic system that um, really is deeply flawed and has been for many years, decades, centuries. And so right now, since this is the first time we've had a global crisis of this nature, it's illuminating many different dimensions of the flaws of the system. And one of those dimensions is drug policy. And drug policy is relevant to a lot of the other crises that we're seeing as a result of COVID-19. So I was just brainstorming before coming on and thinking like, what are all, what are the different things that we're seeing right now that have been going on for a long time, but are being exacerbated by COVID-19? So mass incarceration, we've got people, almost two and a half million people jam-packed into places where not only is social distancing impossible, but even hand-washing Hand sanitizer can get you put into solitary confinement. Uh, You don't have access to proper treatment. Estimates are about 500,000 people are rotting in jail because of nonviolent drug possession charges. And so those people, there are some states that are advocating or implementing some kind of early release program, but it's certainly not to the scale that we need. So we have people unnecessarily in these uh, petri dishes that are really uh, at risk. We also have, of course, institutionalized racism. We've seen that in cities like Chicago, 70% in some areas of people who are affected or dying from COVID-19 are people of color. And so it's just 
not surprising. I mean, the healthcare in those areas is really substandard. And uh, also we have police violence. I was reading about Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, who was shot eight times in her bed while she was sleeping at 1230 in the morning because the police were serving a no-knock warrant for drug trafficking. And it turns out the person they were looking for was already in custody and there were no drugs on the premises. And this was an EMT, award-winning EMT, who was shot dead. Uh, And she was African-American. And so this kind of police violence, heavy policing in certain neighborhoods, using drugs as a pretext pretext to unleash uh, firepower and disrupt these communities is is well known and obviously still going on. There's a mental health crisis that is being exacerbated and impacted by this crisis where people in lockdown can't necessarily get the the care that they need and quarantining with uh, in a situation of domestic violence or something like that can um, increase that kind of crisis addiction as well. Um, We haven't had adequate care for people who are addicts because they've been criminalized. And now with this crisis, addicts aren't getting the treatment that they need. (laughs) I mean, which coupled with a for-profit capitalist healthcare system has never worked for these people. You know, once they've been criminalized for what should be considered a public health crisis. That is also being exacerbated. Uh, we have homelessness <laughs> crisis that also there's a lot of high addiction rates among homeless population. They can't social distance there. They don't have access to proper health care either. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, there's been, well, housing inequality, um, even just access to standard housing. Uh, what else? Oh, in Colorado, we had an interesting situation where the governor, when he was declaring the lockdown measure in um, early April, sort of a mandated lockdown. And at first he said that uh, cannabis dispensaries were not considered essential, so they would not be opened. And people that I know that are involved in the cannabis industry in Denver we're talking about how they relived three hours of prohibition where (laughs) there was this absolute mad scramble for people to go and buy the edibles and other cannabis products that they were thought they were going to need. And dispensaries were getting something like five to 600 orders per hour that there was no way they were going to be able to fill. And so the governor finally relented and declared cannabis as an essential cannabis dispensaries as essential. Uh, So it's really sparking a lot of interesting conversations that that we haven't been having in some ways. And uh, another dimension is immigration and refugee flows. So people that are coming from, Places of violence primarily resulting from U.S. foreign policy, either, um, you know, militarized intervention, military coups, covert coups, overthrowing democratic governments, and the war on drugs that has strengthened the cartels in these regions has created a, a public emergency 
in a lot of these countries in Central and South America and Mexico. And so people are coming to the border to seek asylum. And that was already obviously under attack by our current administration, but now, you know, by declaring them as drug traffickers and otherwise threatening public safety in the U.S., that that kind of um, restriction has increased. And finally, I would say um, that, uh, you know, drug research and therapies have also been interrupted, as has all uh, academic and other scholarly work. And I have a feeling with budget cuts that a lot of the funding will maybe dry up. It's certainly a concern. So as I said, this crisis is both, it's making these flaws that were already in the system more visible, but also more urgent. That demands our vigilance and continued action. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that all of that information altogether like that. I think it really highlights the way the drug war and the race war and the class war and, you know, globalism in general are being really highlighted in all their connections because of this virus. And one way that that's really, really evident is through the the policing of quote unquote illegal drugs and um, and of course pharmaceuticals, as we're all talking about vaccines and their merits and demerits. And we're all talking about government control. And I think it's interesting how many conspiracy theories are out there when it's like right under our noses, out in the open, we have all of these policies that are restricting people from accessing drugs that they need and not being uh, criminalized for those drugs. Thank you for putting that all out there so succinctly. Sure, I missed a few things, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's pretty comprehensive. Drug policy affects so many different things in our lives that we don't even know. Yeah, and that was kind of to dovetail off what Emily said and what you said. One of the reasons I was drawn to this work is that it feels like even though drug policy is a huge thing in and of itself, it is this kind of actionable piece of the whole that touches all these other pieces of our society, from healthcare to racism to class. It just touches everything, so it feels like making those reforms has a domino effect. Well, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching a class on drugs and drug policy, the anthropology of drugs and drug policy, because it is inherently interdisciplinary. And so when I'm working with first year students that come in from all different majors, it relates to anything that any student is studying. And over the past seven plus years that I've been, well, more than that, but really been teaching on this, it... (laughs) I've only run into maybe one major that I think I have is challenging to figure out how it might relate. It would, that would be like aerospace engineering, <laughs> but even so, yeah. even so it's relevant because there are different kinds of plant-based substances that might be much more effective in space, you know, d- dealing with anxiety or depression or whatever people who go into space might be dealing with rather than pharmaceuticals that you maybe could grow your plants in the space station. I don't know. So, you know, even astronomy, some people think that maybe mushrooms uh, landed on earth through an asteroid. 
some spores were carried through space. I mean, we don't know. So anyway, yeah, Sarah. So like this topic really touches every single discipline that you could think of law, medicine, business, chemistry, biology, sociology, on and on. That's one reason why it's so fascinating. I would say that probably if I had to like venture a guess, one of the things that has helped me, um, and probably many other people who've studied the stars and, um, you know, the great big zoom out, um, are often inspired to do that by taking some kind of psychedelic substance that like opens their mind to the, to the smallness of us as people and the vastness and interconnectedness of everything. Well, Shane Mouse, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Shane Mouse. Mouse. Shane Mouse, who calls himself a psychonaut. He's like, I'm exploring the universe in my mind. You know, it's, yeah, I think there's so many parallels that you can make just the patterns that we see in our own mind and in the universe that really are illuminated when you, through psychedelic use or other kinds, you know, you don't need drugs to achieve these higher Mm -hmm. states of awareness. Right. You should point out. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, you know, once you see these parallel patterns in nature, it really helps people to feel more connected, feel part of the cosmos related to each other. You realize you're not this isolated being walking around, you know, that again, the sort of colonialist capitalist kind of thought process. And so I think studying drugs and drug policy also help. (laughs) It's like, when I talk to my students about this, I'm like, don't take anything for granted. Don't take it at face value. If you read a news story, you got to dig behind it. Where did this policy come from? Who's telling this story? What kinds of language are they using? And once they realize that they have been completely misled and that millions of people in the U.S. and around the world have been harmed in very deep and lasting ways, you know, not just as individuals, but as families and communities and cultures and ecosystems and on and on, they realize, oh my God, this has been going on for over a hundred years. What else are we being lied to about? You know, it really opens up a lot of other conversations. And to me, that's why I like this topic as um, a way to help students access their critical thinking faculties. Yeah, for sure. And kind of getting back to something you said earlier, when I'm at my most conspiratorial, which is maybe 50% of the time (laughs) that I'm operating, um, I often think, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons these drugs are illegal is, you know, because it changes people's perception and it potentially pushes back against a, you know, capitalist mode of relating to reality. So... For sure. I mean, that was obvious with Nixon. He was freaked out about, and and other people that he worked with, you know, freaked out about the hippies, really, that they had their finger on the the pulse, that they were starting to uncover the reality that we're all connected. And if we're bombing people in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, whoa, wait a minute, what does that mean? And they're why are we creating them as the other, the enemy, and they're so far away? And we invaded their country, but then we're calling them the, them the enemy and bombing them and torturing them and mass murdering and spraying their 
forests with chemicals and destroying their villages. I mean, it's so shocking. And that, you know, that was part of the, the goal of the original, well, the war on drugs. So not drug prohibition, which goes back to the late 1800s, but the war on drugs. And, you know, Nixon himself commissioned one of the most extensive government-funded studies on cannabis. And they he tapped some of the best scientists in the field, and they spent two years doing a study on cannabis, and they came back very clearly saying, no, there's no danger of cannabis. There's no reason this should be illegal. It has no public health risk, no, you know, very low possibility for addiction and harm, and there's no reason it should be illegal. And he just uh, threw it in the circular file and said, well, I have a different political agenda, you know? Yeah. And of course, you know, John Ehrlichman's statement right before he died, when he was being interviewed by Dan Baum uh, in, uh, I think, 2006, and he's the one who was one of Nixon's assistants. And he said, we knew it wasn't about the drugs, but our agenda was to be able to disrupt both the hippies, the anti-war movement and African-American communities and movements and using drugs drugs was the perfect pretext because as he said you can arrest their leaders you can disrupt their communities you can vilify them night after night on the evening news you know and they knew they were lying about the drugs they had a different sort of political agenda which was exactly the same as reagan in the 80s uh you know this cold warrior trying to set up these death squads, the Contras in Central America, and, you know, just say no and the crack epidemic. The whole, I mean, as you guys probably know, I mean, the crack epidemic was a complete sham. It was advertised in the media before crack use was even very widespread. People are like, ooh, what's that? Let's try it out. You know, meanwhile, the CIA is protecting Cocaine that's being produced in South America, going through Nicaragua, and then into South Central LA and New York City and a lot of other urban areas. I remember the first time that I, oh, by the way, to fund the CIA operations in Central America, which Congress had refused to fund. They said, no, you can't back the Contras and go and and disrupt these uh, sovereign states in Central America. And so Reagan's workaround was, well, you know, we'll sell weapons to Iran and we'll allow the sale of cocaine so that we can fund our operations. So it, the whole thing, I mean, the history of drug prohibition has always been about social control, whether you're talking about opium in the late 1800s or cannabis in the early 1900s or cocaine or crack later or heroin or anything like that was about social control and behind the scenes profiteering on the part of, you know, basically U.S. corporations and the CIA. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is a, it really sums up all of the all of the interconnectedness between militarism and the drug war and the regime change operations. I don't know how much work um you've done 
or research you've done on the opioid epidemic as relating to our occupation of Afghanistan and all the poppy fields. But it seems like the the primary, as you said, the primary purpose of drug policy is not to keep people safe, but to control people. But for some reason, that narrative never comes to, it never seems to come back to bite the controllers in the ass. Um, It's, even though we can, we can look around, it's not a conspiracy, like we can look around and see very clearly with our own eyes that this policy was made that that um, primarily impacted these marginalized communities and this policy was made that primarily impacted that marginalized community and so you know when we, when it comes time to talk about you know foreign policy and and the way our domestic drug policy and our foreign policy interact. I'm interested to know more about the the work you did in Bolivia, because I feel like, especially as we're talking about Central American regime change efforts, I would love to hear more about your work there. Yeah, I'll see what, what I can address. Um, one book that I wanted to highlight for listeners is a book called War and Drugs, The Role of Military Conflict in the Development of Substance Abuse. And it's by Dessa K. Bergen-Sico, that's C-I-C-O, published by Paradigm Publishers here in Boulder. And she talks about uh, a lot of different pieces of history and, and makes a lot of connections to the fact that drugs have always been a part of the war agenda in the U.S., and specifically during the Cold War and, like you mentioned, Afghanistan. I mean, the U.S., through the CIA, was immediately after World War II during its its original creation of the CIA. They were collaborating with Nazis because the Nazis were really good at uh, intelligence gathering, right? I mean, the CIA protected hundreds, if not maybe thousands of former Nazi soldiers and people who had definitely been involved in in high crimes and were protecting them around the world, including in the United States with Operation Paperclip Mm -hmm. and in South America. And during the Cold War, when the U.S. was backing military dictatorships by 1980 in all but three countries in Latin America, as well as other places around the world, drugs became a key source for funding for covert operations. As I mentioned before, under Reagan, that was just the last example that we know of. (laughs) But, you know, starting in the 50s, going into the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia to... uh, ally with warlords and turn them into drug lords um, in order to, quote, keep the world safe from communism. What I always tell students is that the Cold War was not about keeping the world safe from communism. That was, I mean, were there abuses done by um, the Soviet Union? Yes, of course there were. You know, did they have their own kind of covert operations? Yes, they did. But from the U.S. side, which is the side that we live on, that we need to know our own history. 
you know, the CIA, the U.S. government was really interested in making the world safe for capitalism, making sure capitalism became the only game in town and securing access to resources and which often meant removing them, those resources from indigenous populations that might have been organizing to for their own sovereignty or organizing labor unions and other kinds of social movements. You know, the goal of capitalism is cheap labor and cheap resources mm -hmm. to promote consumption. And so, you know, those patterns that we saw in Southeast Asia and later in the Golden Crescent, Afghanistan and Pakistan, they funded our military operations in those areas and consumption and abuse of heroin increased dramatically after the U.S. got involved in both of those areas. And the same could be said for South America. And so I've been working in Bolivia since 1997 and I knew nothing about any of this before then. I didn't even, I'd never even heard of coca leaf. You know, none of us really know that cocaine is actually one of only 20 alkaloids in an ancient medicinal plant called coca. And it's, it's interesting because we think that coca and cannabis and probably opium have been used for thousands of years, maybe up to 10,000 years, maybe longer. They're, they're some of the most ancient medicinal and ceremonial plants on the planet. And all three of them have been criminalized in the war on drugs. I think because they're associated with indigenous cultures and communities that uh, the US is not really interested in valorizing. Um, you know, and the fact that the alcohol industry and the cigarette tobacco industry funds a lot of these just say no drug free America, drug free world kind of campaigns. Uh, they want to maintain their corner on the market, even though, I mean, how many people die from smoking cigarettes and alcohol every year? Hundreds of thousands of people and pharmaceuticals as well. Uh, big Pharma, of course, being another major funder of, of lobbyists and um, political campaigns. So I knew none of that when I started working in Bolivia. But this is partly the advantage of the anthropological perspective is that, you know, I went down there first by chance and then intentionally to talk with people there. What's interesting to you? What, what do you care about? What are the issues that you think are most important right now? You know, if I were to come and live here, what would you want me to study? I mean, I think the most fundamental project that we should and uh, should be engaged in is decolonization. And that takes many forms. And we've already talked about some of the issues here in the United States. I mean, racist, Policing is neocolonialism. Okay. So one of the good things about the anthropological perspective is that as a discipline, we are very conscious of the history of colonialism and how anthropology was utilized to actually promote colonialism, or at least to facilitate the, the colonialists in areas around the world. Uh, once Britain 
took over what was the Sudan area, they hired anthropologists to come in. Go study these people that are so unique and weird and interesting. What are they doing and how do we pacify them? And how do we make them subservient to the colonialist agenda? And so anthropologists, that's where the discipline began. And, you know, in the early 1900s, there was a movement away from that. And Franz Boas and Margaret Mead and some other people were really key in shifting the discipline away from that, from actually allying or um, representing that alternative point of view. So it's part of what we're taught as a discipline to be aware of these kinds of relationships. But what's ironic is that the ethnographic, really from any discipline, a lot of disciplines use ethnography, long-term immersive field work, qualitative, collecting qualitative data, storytelling, um, et cetera, that a lot of ethnography still reflects the colonialist kind of agenda where, oh, I have privilege and I have funding, so I'm going to go live in this faraway place that I think is, you know, uh, off the beaten track and I'm going to collect all this data and then I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to add value to it in my own way. So it's not a, it's like information is a raw material as opposed mm. to iron or, or silver or something. It's information. You bring it back, you add value in a, the form of a dissertation, then you get the degree and then you get the job and the big salary and all of that. That's colonialism. So I was very, conscious about that and trying not to replicate those patterns. And so one thing I did was, as I was saying, I went to Bolivia and I actually spent some time um, in 2001 to ask people, what would you want me to study? What is interesting to you? What do you want other people in my country to know about what's going on? And as Time went on, to make a long story short, as time went on, you know, people said, would you please go back and tell people in your country that coca leaf is not a drug and that we are not drug traffickers? So I took that as my mandate. And even though my dissertation committee told me specifically I could not study coca and cocaine uh, because I was too young, even though I was 35. I was a woman. I'd be in, uh, put in danger. Uh, I couldn't have these conversations because people wouldn't talk to me, even though that's what people talk about every day, all day. I wouldn't get funding because it's too contentious. I mean, this whole thing is so very strange, but you know, that's what I ended up writing my dis- dissertation on. And basically I ended up looking at the ways that legal coca producers, coca farmers in this particular region that was the area that had been legalized within Bolivia, the ways that they were organizing democratically to resist the U.S. war on drugs and why, you know, what had been the impacts of the war on drugs over the past many decades, you know, and how were they reimagining their own future based on coca which is an ancient ceremonial plant. It's an ancient medicinal, nutritional plant. And it really is one of those, as one anthropologist has said, is the linchpin of these uh, agricultural societies. And so basically 
I was able to spend a year and a half there in 2003-2004 with uh, a couple of grants to really study what this looks like. And it's kind of like the way I thought of it, it was good timing on my part because there was a lot of activism going on around defending coca. But people were using the language of coca or death, we will Mm. prevail. That was written on huge banners uh, behind their meetings that they're having these regional meetings with all of the community leaders that have been elected. Coca or death, we will prevail. That's how important it was to them. And so everything they were talking about was in that context. And, you know, it was the way I thought of it was like Coca was sort of like the grain of sand that an oyster ingests and then builds upon it has something to build upon and creates the pearl. You know, to me, it was coca was this irritant. The issue of coca was the irritant that allowed me to witness democracy, you know, allowed them to organize into this thing that that actually ended up leading to the election of President Ava Morales in 2005. It was the first indigenous leader in that country. He was a coca grower himself. And um, it was a really unique experience. Uh, to witness this, you know, because of the mandate of the women that told me, will you please go back and teach people in your country about coca? Every class that I've ever taught, which includes, you know, three courses I designed myself when I was still in grad school and then untold, untold numbers <laughs> since then, you know, teaching mostly full time since uh, 2007. And uh, the issue of the war on drugs and of this, you know, particular story about coca leaf and their democratic organizing to defend it relates to, like we were saying, it's interdisciplinary. It relates to so many different issues. I started off teaching it in my classes on globalization, you know, the drug trade and what does that look like? And the United Nations um, single convention from 1961 that, that basically took the model of prohibition from the U.S. through Harry Anslinger, who basically turned this into a global model for prohibition, a militarized enforcement. And, um, you know, it relates to classes on democracy and immigration and uh, labor rights and all kinds of, of social movements, things like that. Thank you for that summation. I was, because it, it really does all... Um, it has this this uh, symbolic impact as well as as the irritant of organ of you know the as the impetus for organizing um, and also you know this uh, global impact as far as a substance that can be used to both control people and profit off of them and so. Anyway, I, um, I'm going to let Sarah. The control versus liberation is a really good topic. So we yeah. can go back to that. But go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, maybe this ties into that, too, because, you know, if we were going to wrap it up on any point is, you know, we're in a really unique political moment in this country. And I've kind of been thinking about how the drug policy reform movement could harness this moment. But then also when you were talking about the movements in Bolivia, I thought of, and it's not a perfect analogy, um, but the movements to legalize marijuana in this country, the psilocybin initiative that happened in Denver, the initiative that's happening in Boulder County to decriminalize ethnogenic plants that's hopefully coming down the pike here soon. 
Um, it's interesting that, you know, drugs can also become this liberatory force that people will organize around. So, yeah. Okay, that's a good point, because I know that we wanted to talk about reform as well. Yeah. So, yes. So I learned a lot about that through my work in Bolivia, and some is really relevant and some is not. I mean, so when Evo Morales was elected president, one of the biggest agenda goals for coca growers and the indigenous social movements in Bolivia at that time, 2005, I mean, leading up until 2005 and then the early part of Morales' presidency was changing the United Nations single convention. The ideal was to remove coca leaf for, as a schedule one narcotic. It was categorized together with cocaine and heroin and morphine and cannabis in 1961. Well, who were the leaders that were signing this convention? in 1961. They were not indigenous people in any of these countries around the world. I mean, think about what the 1950s looked like in the world, looked like in the United States, you know, racism deeply entrenched. And so the single convention is just inherently flawed because of that. Uh, it stated in terms of the Andean countries, it said that coca leaf had to be eradicated 100% in 25 years. Peru and Bolivia that signed off on that then embarked upon a project of total eradication, which then became wrapped up in the war on drugs. But the justification was, again, the specious argument based on racism that coca leaf was the cause of underdevelopment in rural and urban indigenous Andean society a completely ahistorical anti-analysis. I mean, there was no analysis except uh, deeply flawed research in quotations that was carried out in the 1950s, studying coca leaf chewers in Peru to say that coca leaf caused poverty and underdevelopment and a disrespect for dominant culture, you know, white European culture. Yeah. Uh, so the categorization of coca leaf as a schedule one narcotic has always been completely ludicrous. So finally, when Ava Morales is elected, he's not only a, an indigenous um, Aymara Quechua um, native person, but also was a coca grower. And so people thought, well, finally, maybe we're going to have some sanity at the level of the UN. And he made a huge splash at his first United Nations speech in 2009, I think it was. And he held up three coca leaves and he said, this is coca. It's, it's green. It's not white like the kind of coca you guys use <laughs> in the north. And, you know, he explained, like, this is part of our culture and... It's part of our ceremonies and all this stuff. So he, you know, the the goal of actually descheduling coca leaf is still a far off fantasy, unfortunately. But he simply tried to change half of a sentence in the text of the convention to just acknowledge that coca leaf is part of the cultural patrimony of Bolivia. 
That was basically it. That's what he wanted to say. And even that was blocked by the U.S. and a couple and a cohort of psychophants. And so to me, thinking about all of that, like, what is democracy? What is the meaning of reform? Well, when you're in the international stage and you're going up, up against the hegemonic powers of, of the United States and, and other related countries, it's, it's going, going to take a long time. But I think even those kinds of steps, part of what we need to do is change the conversation, normalize the discussion of these topics. You know, that's partly what I try to do in my classes. We can have conversations about everything from peyote and mescaline to ayahuasca to psilocybin to cannabis to MDMA to LSD to alcohol to cigarettes to sugar, yeah. <laughs> one of the most harmful drugs that we have. And it doesn't mean that you're advocating for use of any of these substances, but you can have a discussion about them. You can talk about them like they're legitimate topics for scholarly debate and scholarly scientific research as well. And so that's that's really part of the goal and partly what Eva Morales really has done on the international stage. That's partly what Colorado and Washington did in 2012 by voting to legalize cannabis. One, one way that I really like to think about this, especially thinking about the United States and the fact that we have 50 states. So San Ho Tree is a research associate with the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. And he talks about how the United States is a democratic laboratory. And when even when Colorado and Washington State voted to legalize cannabis, they didn't do it in the same way. They didn't have the same, um, you know, the Colorado had an amendment to change the state constitution. Well, not other states are doing that. Uh, Washington, D.C. voted to legalize cannabis a few years later, but they didn't want dispensaries. They wanted to just uh, remove the criminalization and have a policing of certain neighborhoods, recognizing the racism that's inherent in, in drug prohibition and policing. And their law that they decided they wanted is to allow people to grow it and you can give it away, but you can't sell it. Hmm. All right. Well, that's an interesting take. You know, if each state eventually does a different thing, whether it's medical or recreational, we're going to do it in different ways. And over time, we're going to figure out what methods are effective, right? We're going to have, we're going to bring back democracy. Prohibition removes democracy. You no longer have a discussion for what does this mean? What are legitimate uses? How do we want to support people who might be suffering from alcohol or tobacco or cannabis or any kind of drug use? Um, you just have a blanket, you know, prohibition, it's bad, you know, and we've taken something that might be considered immoral, according to certain people, that people who grow certain uh, substances or sell them or use them are bad, and we've turned them into criminals. And that's a totally different uh, kind of situation that we actually played this out with alcohol. We've already learned this lesson, and we're relearning all the same lessons, but at a much larger scale now, you know, 100 years later. You know, the goal should be to normalize this conversation, to recognize that, that, you know, there's a spectrum of reform. So 
Decriminalization is often considered kind of the first rational step, which Portugal did. And, you know, all the naysayers were like, oh, my God, we're going to become this nation of drug abusers and people sleeping on the street and all this stuff. Actually, it was the complete opposite. There's a, a lot of, you know, really encouraging signs out of Portugal. Legalization would be the next, the, the more, the step towards greater liberation, greater liberty and freedom. And it's something that thinking about those words, concepts, actually cuts across the political spectrum. So this is an issue that is relevant to the farthest left, the farthest right, even though I don't like those terms left and right. But, you know, that's what we're using right now. So drug policy is really relevant to any node on the political spectrum and Reform is also a spectrum that really requires experimentation, scientific research, therapeutic application, um, and the legislative and legal, medicinal, all these, again, all these sort of interdisciplinary angles. You know, it's part of that process. At its foundation, reform is all about democracy. And I, I did want to add, just on the topic of reform, talking about how it cuts across the political spectrum. I just will never remember my first DPA conference breakfast. I was at a table with a libertarian cop who was part of LEAP, the skinny kid with a ponytail who had a bunch of Beckley and Maps buttons on, like total psychonaut, <laughs> and then a um, sex workers' rights advocate who, you know, right. come from like a poor, I think she was from the Bronx and like... You right. couldn't have seen a better summation of the diversity of voices that come together in that totally. space. And though those yeah. little political markers are just kind of, you know, they don't really have much use in that space when you're trying to come to common sure. ground. And it's yeah. a very inspiring model, I think, for other movement building. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Because so many, all these different dimensions of, of, the flaws in our system that we were talking about at the beginning, we can't keep having separate movements. Yeah. We're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. We have to really come together around, you know, what's, what are the common factors? And to me, mm -hmm. colonialism is really the common factor. You know, really, it's really about the people versus the oligarchy. Yeah. Wh whose side are you on? Yeah. If you're on the side of oligarchy, then be clear about that. And then we know where you stand. I, I did want to highlight some of the organizations that are really working hard to address the problems with drug prohibition and the potentials for reform. And of course, the Drug Policy Alliance is really front and center in the United States anyway, and they've done a really good job of going global in the past few years. Mm -hmm. And Sarah and I have both attended multiple times now the biannual International Drug Policy Reform Conference that takes place in different locations around the country every year. They also have a really good podcast called Drugs and Stuff. And one of the things that Sarah and I have worked on over the years is compiling a list of reliable sources of information. And again, I think that's one of the problems when thinking about reform is that most people don't know how to find information. Even my students, after two or three months of studying these topics with me, I send them out to do research on different things. I swear to God, half of them come back with 
sources and I'm like, where'd you get this information? And they're like, oh, let me see. Oh, drugfreeworld.org. I'm like, how reliable is that information? (laughs) You have a whole list in your syllabus of sources. You just Googled. And what do you think is going to pop up first? They pay to make sure that pops up first. Oh my God. So yeah. (laughs) So really understanding what a reliable source of information even means is important. There's, I mentioned the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. There's the International Drug Policy Consortium. There's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies or MAPS. There's the Transnational Institute. There's Washington Office on Latin America and a lot of other kinds of sources that can really help people find good good information. Yeah, Arrowhead.org. Arrowhead, yeah. Golly's got to give a shout out to Arrowhead. Yeah. yeah, we'll definitely post a lot of links in the show notes to all these okay, places yeah. and to the book that you mentioned as well. So, mm-hmm. okay. Um, yeah, There's Emily. Lots of other books, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Emily, you said you had one more question? Yeah, one more question. And you've actually already touched on a lot of it, but maybe just to like consolidate um, your vision as far as. You know, we've talked about a lot of the problems with the drug policy we currently have and, you know, the reasons for those problems. They're not necessarily accidental. Um, And uh, but in a world in a world where (laughs) where drugs are um, not being used as a tool of control and suppression of people's autonomy and culture, what would um, an, a, a perfect drug policy look like to you, both on the, the local or domestic scale and as it relates to our, our neighbors in other countries? Well, let me start by saying that we need to first recognize that what we call drugs, which itself, of course, is a problematic term that, that has a negative connotation which we need to unpack. So I think maybe we want to even, I guess, talk about substances or psychoactives or something like that. Something that affects the human body or the mind that alters its normal operation. Okay. And I, I think we need to recognize that these kinds of psychoactive substances have been a partner of human social evolution for tens of thousands of years. And so this whole question about drug use and abuse really needs to be situated in a much deeper historical context. There is a scientist named Ronald Siegel who has advanced the theory that intoxication is the fourth drive of human survival on an individual and a collective basis. So we know that food, uh, water, and sex are the critical components that ensure our propagation into future generations, right? We need food to eat, you know, so, so hunger, the drive, so hunger, thirst, and sexual desire are the three the three drives, and he's saying that intoxication is the fourth drive. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I find it 
really fascinating. You know, what does that even mean? And as we mentioned, intoxication can come from a lot of different sources like running or exercise, fasting, dancing around a fire, drums, you know, all night or things like that. So it is not necessary to use drugs, although cultures around the world have had alcoholic beverages and psychedelics and other things that have helped them achieve these altered states. And the difference is that in these kind of ancient cultural contexts, the uses of these very powerful substances were tightly controlled and required the guidance of trained specialists, otherwise known as shamans, perhaps, in certain contexts, and only other, uh, under certain ceremonial kinds of situations. These were not recreational drugs. These were not freely available. You didn't just go out and take peyote and run around the, the hillside. You know, they were done in very specific circumstances under the guidance of these trained specialists. And so I think, first of all, we need to bring that kind of thing back where, you know, once you remove something from its original cultural context, that's where abuse and addiction can really start happening, you know, whether it's alcohol or cannabis or other substances. We also need to recognize that people are going to react in different ways to these substances. So there's something called set and setting among the community of people who study these kinds of substances. So that's something else that we need to teach. I mean, I think we need to replace the DARE program, which is, you know, as effective as abstinence only in terms of yeah. sex. Uh, it's, as, it's that effective. I mean, by talking about it, you're heightening your interest and awareness and you're actually driving people to uh, try this out. But under uh, situations that they're not safe, they can't get the help they need, they're going to be demonized or criminalized or arrested or incarcerated or something like that or end up with children too early in life that they <laughs> didn't plan for, you know, same with having a, you know, a really bad trip that you didn't plan for because you weren't educated on what are these substances. And so one of the other books that I really like is by Andrew Weil called From Chocolate to Morphine. That's something that you should put in the notes here. But, you know, we need to start early educating people young people as if they had the power to make good choices for themselves. And that, you know, that term is so overused. I'm, I'm a, I'm a parent. So like make good choices is sort of the thing that kids hate to hear, but you know, it's really important in the context of these uh, psychoactive substances where we need to be educating young people about what these substances are, what they can do to you, what a dose is. Um, you know, you need to understand, do you have a history of anxiety or depression or any other thing in your, maybe your family's history, um, alcoholism or addiction or something like that, where you really need to know yourself well. And then the other dimension of that is setting. So that was the set, sort of the mindset. And then the other dimension is setting. And we need to teach people, young people and adults, about setting. You know, you, what does it mean to be in a safe setting? What does it mean to be with people who 
other people who understand what these substances are and that can help you if you get into trouble we are not just you know dropping ecstasy at a concert where you can really get yourself in trouble you know or in a college town where you know something bad could really happen to you um, if you lose your faculties and sense of awareness I think both of those are the main thing and I think that Drug policy reform is going to be a long-term project. I think that cannabis was a low-hanging fruit. So I think that we need to learn from the different cannabis policies that we have in the U.S. As I said, the Democratic Laboratory in San Ho Tree's terms and see what's working, what's not working. You know, I mean, there's there's a contradictory data that I've read, you know, that cannabis use among young people didn't change after legalization. And other studies that say, oh, hell yes, it did change. It went way up, you know, or even among among adults. And I think that's one measure of looking, you know, that doesn't tell us anything about the quality of that experience. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I think we also need to look around the world. The U.S. likes to think of itself as a city on the hill and American exceptionalism and everything we do is right and we're the best democracy in the world and all that BS. And I think we need to humble ourselves and say, you know what, what we've done is really cause a lot of harm among different communities in this country and among people around the world. You know, we have invaded and interfered with other countries and, you know, millions of people have suffered, uh, whether it's from spraying glyphosate, the most toxic substance ever invented by man, one of them, around Colombia, you know, uh, polluting the lungs of the earth to uh, wars in Afghanistan and incarceration, etc. We also need to learn from other countries like Portugal and Switzerland and the Netherlands and a lot of other Uruguay and other places that have implemented alternatives and implemented different kinds of reforms. And we definitely need to have another UNGAS, which stands for United Nations General Assembly Special Session, which we had one in 2016 in New York City. And a lot of civil society groups from around the world said, oh my God, this is our chance. We're going to really shift the conversation. We're going to maybe try to get some substantive changes in the, the UN single convention. That didn't happen. Those kinds of alternatives were completely sidelined. Civil society groups were basically ignored, which happens actually at, at every UN uh, meeting, whether it's on climate change or drugs or whatever, unfortunately. So uh, we need to put civil society groups front and center. We need to replicate the Drug Policy Alliance c uh, conference that they have every other year to bring in people from across the spectrum, whether they are were former drug addicts, formerly incarcerated individuals, therapy groups and medical scientific researchers and academic teachers and librarians <laughs> and people in law enforcement and business people, all those people who are involved in this issue. We need to have those kinds of voices that are heard, not just these political appointees and corporate representatives that are basically writing our policy. We need to finally be learning from countries like Portugal that decriminalized all drugs in 2001 and see what they've been learning. So, I mean, as far as there, there is no one size fits all policy. 
And again, I think that reform needs to be tied to the democratic process of transparency, accountability, open debate. And basically you have to try things out like we have with cannabis in Colorado. We didn't know what we were doing in 2012 when we passed the amendment. We just said, this is what, these are our goals, but we don't know how to get there. So I think, you know, once we show that this issue is related to all these other issues, I think we can start to make some headway, but not until we have a new administration. <sighs> well, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that are probably not going to be able to happen until we have a new administration. Although, you know, I don't even if we do end up with a new administration, it's not necessarily going to be friendly to the kind of drug policy reform that emphasizes education over restriction. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Back. <laughs> Democrats or Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. No, right. both are a nightmare. Well, and I guess that's how that's how alcohol prohibition both stopped and ended was from the grassroots Yeah, that built up okay. and where I feel like we're about to reach a tipping point for cannabis. And I think that if we, and now, you know, psilocybin. So I think we just need to keep, uh, you know, normalizing this conversation and, um, you know, making allies, allying with different social movements that are, relevant because we keep if we keep having this uh fractured conversation everyone has their own you know we have the housing equity movement and then we have the mass incarceration movement and then we have the i don't know there's, there's so many different dimensions and we have to really pull ourselves together yeah and i think that's one of the goals with this pod in general is to try to talk about movement building as opposed to maybe electoral politics, because I think if you look at the big changes yeah. that have happened with civil rights, they didn't really happen based on who was in office. They happened with what the people yeah. were doing on the ground. Yes, so. because they put pressure yeah. on the people who were in power. Yeah. They're not going to change just because one day they feel like, oh, gee, wow, we've been hurting yeah. people. We're going to change our policy. No, it's only yeah. because of pressure. Yeah, or because they have a D or an R in front of their name. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too, because one way to create pressure is to sort of create subversive networks and systems of regulating and educating that can function and exist and improve people's quality of life no matter who's in office, and to to empower people to you know, take those wise actions and to not wait for there to be some sort of federal legislation saying, like, now you can educate people properly about these substances. You know, the education piece can happen no matter who's in office if enough people do it. And then once enough people are doing it, then that creates pressure to for policy change. You know, a large number of people in Colorado were you know, storming the dispensaries, it's creating a very clear pressure on on policy. You know, that policy wouldn't have existed if all those people hadn't been like, oh, hell no, I need my weed. Jared Polis is the governor who was already sensitive to the issue, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, I, I just think changing the terms of discussion, you know, public health and individual safety and, you know, so it's not about, and I think decoupling this idea that legalization means advocacy or means that everyone should be doing drugs. I mean, I went through D.A.R.E. I remember um, first time I smoked weed and I was like, oh, this is actually 
fine. Nothing happened. I guess I was lied right. to about everything. And then right. the next, you know, everything. 10 years of my life proceeded to try everything known to man, including exactly. some things that ended up becoming a little yeah. bit of a problem for me because I didn't have the container. I didn't have the education, you right. know, and um, although alcohol was the drug that was by far the most harmful to exactly. me, it almost killed me. And, they talk know, about like marijuana that, being a gateway drug. That is such bullshit. Alcohol uh, is the gateway drug. Yeah. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Carol. Um, where can people find you? Do you have social media or anything that you would want people to follow? I don't really know, but they can email me. You can give my Colorado okay, uh, cool. EDU email. Sweet. Yeah. We'll put that in the show okay. notes. Cool. Thank you. Yes. This is so much fun. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you so much, Carol. So what the folk did you learn, Sarah? Oh wait, let me put this window back up. Because I was just getting a getting some some wook bleed. Wook bleed. Oh shit. <laughs> I am in Portland. There are wandering wooks. Portland is where I met my first wook, actually. Yeah. Traveled with him for a while and then I found out what a wook was. And then you realized that you were gonna pay for everything. I did. I did. I realized that I was going to pay for everything, and I did pay for everything. But luckily, at that point, I had enough money to where I could afford the cost of that lesson. <laughs> I had just gotten out of the army, so. One of my favorite um, T-shirts from Fishlot is like, "You got to let the Wookie win." So. <laughs> 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 Which, speaking of Fishlot, this actually is something I wanted to talk about with the post-Carol conversation if we're recording. Okay, great. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's jump in now that we've warmed up. So, and my brother pointed this out. So when Elijah McLean was killed by Aurora police and part of his death, I, I mean, I don't know if this is directly what killed him, but like involved him being in part of his horrific ordeal is him being injected with ketamine. Weirdly, that juxtaposition was the weekend I was at Fish, as I am every year for Dex, because, you know, they're my band. And it was just a weird juxtaposition to think of, like, you know, in a scene where there's a lot of recreational drug use and a lot of relative privilege, that I was partying in a house in Aurora, like, literally a couple blocks, I think, from where he was killed. So Yeah, yeah, that really is an interesting... And, like, a stark juxtaposition. I mean, yeah, you and I are both well aware of, of the the double standard and hypocrisy of, um, you know, white people drug culture versus non-white people drug culture and the way that, you know, we know plenty of, you know, professional drug users. And, you know, it's not a thing. But as soon as it's time to vilify a non-white person, one of the first things that comes up is drugs. And it one of the first, like, stones thrown usually has to do with that. You don't hear the same accusatory tone with white people ever when you hear about something bad happening. You're never like, well, they were on drugs. Or if it's mentioned, it's in, like, some sort of flippant way or, like, wink-wink way. Yeah, and I mean, I hate to overgeneralize because I do think there's a lot of, you know, class and a lot of poor white people do get some of, and I'm just speaking from my experience in the drug policy movement, working with a lot of addicts and former incarcerated people, there is a similarity of experience, but it's certainly, the disparity is very real. And certainly someone Mm -hmm. like me who looks like me, who presents like me going to a fish show, you know, I have to be careful, mm-hmm. and people do get popped at those things, but 
it's it's like what happened to Elijah McClain, the likelihood of it happening to me is very low because of how I look. And that is right. stupid. Especially with the response to the vigil in Aurora, where the police coming into tear gas, people playing violins. I feel like it's just becoming more and more stark and more and more transparent that the police are going to do what they want to do and they're not going to do what they don't want to do and there's nothing we can do about it unless we just keep coming back I say we and I haven't been in either of any of those positions this this time around yet so note to self yeah I mean I think there's lots of ways to get involved with this fight and we have that wonderful interview with Ash coming up that talks about that but um yeah, I mean, to sort of bring yeah. it back to what we talked about with Carol, I think I mentioned this in the interview, but like working on drug policy reform to me always felt like something kind of actionable that does touch all these pieces and definitely within the reform movement, because it's such a diverse group of people. We've had some pretty tough and real conversations about racial justice, racial privilege, and even the racial privilege within the drug policy reform movement. And there's a part of me that feels like because of the, I can raise that conversation about legalizing drugs and criminal justice reform, and it will be received differently because of who I am. So I feel kind of obligated in a way to do that. I don't want to say that in a way like, look at me, I'm such a good person doing all this good work. Give me a cookie. Yeah. I'm not being a shitty person. That's... But like, <laughs> you know, it's it, when you go to like the reform conference, like Carol and I have done twice and we've done our little community session and, um, it's a really eye-opening experience because it's a place, at least from my experience, and I'm not saying it's a perfect community and it hasn't still have growth that needs to be done in certain areas, but it's definitely a place where you get to hear people's voices and it really puts a lot of your own shit in perspective and also really shows how everyone's kind of connected in this fight and also the work we need to do to make sure that the right people's voices are being represented in this fight and, you know, are leading this fight. Yeah, and the I thought the way that she showed how the drug war um, has been used as a weapon to target specifically indigenous communities was a point that I haven't heard um, enough in the mainstream or even in you know, organizing circles. You know, we definitely hear how it truly does um, more impact black and brown communities more, but we don't often hear about why certain substances were criminalized or anything having to do with them being used for um, medicinal purposes or ceremonial purposes or in any kind of indigenous culture that, you know, the U.S., has through policy and violence done its best to crush. Yeah, I mean, it's great that she brings in that international perspective because I hope as this conversation that we're having right now, well, we've been having this conversation for a long time about racial justice that more people are listening to right now, I guess I should say. Right. Um, that we start talking about how that plays out on an international stage and with our imperialism and our policies towards other countries and how people of color around the world have been 
murdered by her government. It's, yeah, you know, it's almost like a weird reproduction of what happens in this country. And it's, I think, the more we all who don't like to look at that reality can get to a place where we can look at it and be uncomfortable and sit with that discomfort and say, how can I change my actions or how can I take even like some small action to break this cycle? It's, um, you know, it's becoming easier and easier to find actions to take. That conversation is happening more and more in the mainstream. That gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah, me too. I think we're entering a reality, and maybe it's on a, if you want to get on a spiritual consciousness level about it, or just the sort of fact of social media, where really things can't hide in the darkness as much. And you can see that that's right. why they try to, say, deplatform some people or come after, you know, certain platforms for where people can freely share information, or going after someone like Julian Assange, you know, where it's like, trying to suppress information because they realize how powerful it is. And granted, people can decide to engage with information or not. I'm not so Pollyanna about things that I think you can just put information out there and people will accept the information because look at all the various crazy strands of things people believe. But I think we are entering into reality where it's much harder for those things to hide in the darkness and harder for them to be ignored. And choosing to ignore them is going to start taking more mental effort than it will take to simply just start with by looking at them. You know, that's where you can start is just by looking at them and acknowledging that these things are happening. Yeah, that's like a huge first step is just to be able to look at reality in the face and say, yes, it's true that we have a racist police force. And yes, it's true that the current economic system that we live under that makes it so that people have to either choose to um, avoid a pandemic or avoid poverty is a self-defeating system, um, a self-eating system even. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, I'll probably say this a million times, the point that people get sick of it, and other people say this all the time, so it's kind of a cliche maybe at this point, but Apocalypse in Greek means the lifting of the veil. It's everything being exposed. So you can either choose to hook in with that energy and go with its flow, or you can keep denying it. It's a pretty psychedelic time in general, even if you're sober. Seriously, I feel like everyone right now is kind of experiencing what it's like to be to trip because like. Like, nothing is as it seems. Everything is constantly in motion. You never actually know what's going to happen from one minute to the next. Not like you ever do, but now it's just a lot more obvious. (laughs) (laughs) The veil's gone, baby. Indeed. Woo! All right, well, here's to that, and uh, and I'm, I'm already looking forward to the next time. Yes, definitely. Whenever you sugary drink you'll be on your feet quicker than you think helps you move so fast till it knocks you on your ass we'll take a shot or several at the bar and eat some fast
while you drive your car. Take prescription pain pills to unwind, but don't take anything that might expand your mind. Find your favorite cigarettes at discount prices. Never call a glass of wine one of your vices. Synthetic THC's alright, made in a lab by a man in white. Just light up a joint and the fingers start to point. Drugs are bad, that's what they say. If you take drugs, you must be locked away. Drink some booze to make you happy. Take a pill if you are sad. Smoke a butt or sip a latte if you're mad, but don't take drugs cause drugs are bad. Sip espresso if you're tired, or a beer if you are wired. Some taurine in the morning will make you feel so glad, but don't take drugs cause drugs are bad.